praise God for the work that he's doing in Chris and uh, Tracy's life. And uh, this is just more evidence to the fact that what happened 2,000 years ago uh, still has significance in our lives and in your life today. Jesus is alive. And uh, that's why we gather together to celebrate this morning. If you're visiting with us today, let me say on behalf of the Bayshore family, or if you're watching online for the first time, uh, that we're incredibly grateful to have you with us as uh, our guest. And we would love to know you, and we would love to connect with you and help you get connected into the life of our church and help you with any first steps or next steps uh, that you might want to take as you begin on your journey with Christ. And so I encourage you to stop by one of the welcome areas on your way uh, off campus this morning, or whether you're on campus or online, you can text the word connect uh, to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week and answer any questions you have and help you learn how you can be a part of what God is doing. For those of you who I haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, my name is James, and I have the honor of serving uh, as a lead pastor here uh, of Church on Bayshore, and uh, I hope to have the opportunity to get to meet you. And if you met me, there's something that you would learn about me, and it's this. I have problems with authority. So uh, in my house, uh, there are seven under other individuals who live there. My wife and six children live in our house, and there are days where all seven of them, seven of them feel like they have the right to tell me what to do, and it bothers me. Uh, just the other day, I went to Destin. Uh, I was shopping for something at the outlets, and the store was pretty empty, but I guess there were uh, some kind of COVID restrictions in place at this store, and so they had me wait in line, and I was literally the only person waiting in line, and I'm telling you, it got to me. And just the other day, as often happens driving uh, in my neighborhood, I was driving, and there's a crosswalk, and there's a woman standing by the crosswalk. I'm sorry if this was you. And she has her dog, and she's telling people, just go ahead, just go ahead. And I legitimately thought about just stopping, slamming on brakes, and saying, you have the right of way. But I didn't. I didn't do it. I promise you, because I remembered I'm some of your pastor, and you might be embarrassed. Now, look, I don't mean that I don't respect rules, by the way. I respect rules. I just have a hard time respecting, respecting rules that don't make sense to me. <laughs> and when rules aren't clear, I come up with my own rules. Now, part of this is my personality, but part of this is I'm from America, and that's just kind of how we do things. Um, in fact, I would say that our unofficial national anthem was written by Frank Sinatra, and the song is called My Way. And if you've ever, if you're familiar with that song, he basically talks about a bunch of different things in life, and he says at the end of each verse, I did it my way. That's what he is most proud of. Now, if you don't have a lot of familiarity with Old Blue Eyes, then I'll bring you a more modern version of this, and that is Lady Gaga. In the song Born This Way, she basically is implying the message, whatever it is you feel that is who you are, you need to follow that. The song begins. It doesn't matter if you love him or capital H-I-M, knowing who she's referring to. Just put your paws up because you were born this way, baby. Some of you who are visiting didn't know the pastor would be quoting Lady Gaga today, so welcome. I was reading an article not so long ago about some leading legal thinkers in our world from Australia and from Europe and other places, and they were talking about how modern law and modern civilization has to begin to revolve more around the idea of self-determination. That means self-determination is the highest virtue, the highest value, that people would be able to pursue whatever it is they want in their life, and we begin, need to begin shifting because of our realization or evolution of this. 
Now, most of us realize that there are two conflicting aspects when it comes to what I'm talking about. There's freedom, individual freedom, to be able to do you know, what it is I wanna do in my life and that others have the opportunity to do that as well. And then there's the greater good. There's what's best for a society, what's best for a group of people. And often these two things confront each other. They conflict with one another. Now, today is Easter Sunday, and we celebrate it because of the resurrection of Christ. And what Easter Sunday is has everything to do with what I'm talking about. It has everything to do with this idea of authority. And it has implications for how we view our lives and what it means when we say, I did it my way, or what it means when we say, I was born this way, or what it means when we think about self-determination. As a church, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. Now, as people find their places in Mark chapter 11, I will tell you this. If you're here and uh, you haven't been reading the Bible and you want uh, to start reading the Bible, we actually have a church-wide Bible reading plan. You can find more information out about that on our website. And uh, it's just, we're kind of journeying through the same scriptures together uh, as a church, and we'd love for you to jump in onto that as well. But again, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33 today, and I'm going to read those verses. It says in the Gospel of Mark, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this week in Mark chapter 11, where the, where the gospel writer is uh, talking about, is the week uh, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus is spending a considerable amount of time in the temple this week. Jesus, Jesus most famously turns over tables in the temple, driving out the money changers. But actually, the text tells us that Jesus stayed there in the temple after this act, teaching. Luke tells us in his record of what happened that Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel when he was confronted. Luke chapter 20 verse one says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders here mentioned are a representation or a delegation from what was called the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high court. That's the ruling body of Israel. And they're sent to investigate what Jesus is doing. Jesus had been creating a buzz his entire ministry. And that buzz is at its highest this week of Passover in Jerusalem, where he was declaring his authority by his actions in the temple and in his teaching. Matthew tells us in his gospel, Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? The answer to that question that was being given, which the Sanhedrin could not ignore, was that Jesus was the savior or a prophet. Now, obviously, the belief that Jesus was the promised one of the Old Testament would carry some simple, serious implications for the political and religious authorities of Israel. 
But even if Jesus were just a prophet, which there had not been for hundreds of years, it would be significant. So these religious and political leaders ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? The questioning of authority, of teaching, is legitimate, especially from the Sanhedrin. It was a part of their assigned and assumed responsibility. They, there had been tons of false prophets excuse me, that rose up in Israel, just like we have today. But something you should understand about Jesus is this. In that day, it was common for the preachers and teachers to quote a rabbi, a teacher, a tradition, a document, or a council before explaining what the scripture means. Not Jesus. And the first thing I want us to take note of today is this. Jesus has complete authority. Jesus has complete authority. Jesus has full authority because he had direct access to God as the son of God. In Mark chapter one, it tells us that Jesus was in the synagogue teaching and that those who heard him teaching were astonished because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. In Mark chapter two and three, it tells us that he was picking heads of grain on the Sabbath with his disciples and the, the Pharisees had a problem with this and he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter seven, they, they had a problem with Jesus not following the oral law or the tradition of the elders by not washing hands in this ritual before a meal and he exerts his authority over the tradition of the elders. And in this chapter, Mark chapter 11, Jesus actually cleanses the temple and says, you have made what is my house a prayer for all the nations, a den of robbers. So a distinguishing factor about Jesus was that he said things in such an authoritative way that they could not be sidestepped. They could not be simply dismissed. See, people had been routinely used to listening to the same old, same old of the religious formalism that they had become to expect that they would make their way through worship services with little expectation. But when this man, a Galilean carpenter, begins to speak, it captivates people in a way that is quite amazing because he is the son of God and he would claim to be the son of God. Some have said Jesus is just a good moral teacher, but there is no room if you look at the teaching of Jesus to say he was just a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis famously said he is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There is no room in our imagination to distinguish between those things. He is one of those things, or to mix those things, excuse me. And so the religious crowd wants to hear Jesus say that he is the son of God because they want to accuse him of blasphemy and they want to try him for that and ultimately have him crucified. And so what does Jesus say when they ask him, what authority do you do these things by? He says to them in verse 29 that we read, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. From heaven in their language means from God. And he asked John the Baptist, his ministry, where did that authority come from? If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, he showed up on the scene a few years before Jesus and he preached a message of repentance and he baptized people for the forgiveness of their sins. The religious leaders didn't really like John the Baptist and how he was teaching. And John the Baptist confronted them and called them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist got caught into uh, the political issues with Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas eventually had John the Baptist killed. But John the Baptist had quite a following who believed he was a prophet of God. 
And verse 31 says, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Because they didn't believe John the Baptist. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. If we say from heaven, then we're admitting that we were wrong. And we now lose credibility, and that opens up the door for people to accept Jesus or others as being from God. We then lose authority over the people, if that is true. But we can't say from man. Luke says that they thought people might stone them if they said John the Baptist was from man. Stoning was the Old Testament uh, punishment for blasphemy. Knowingly rejecting God's prophet was a capital offense in Israel. So if we say that he was from man, then the, the, the loyal crowd to us would be against us. And so they give a calculated political answer. Verse 33 says, they answered Jesus, we do not know. Now, we need leaders to say, I don't know, more often. We need politicians that'll just say, I'm doing my, making my best guess here. I realize there are nuances on this side and nuances on this side, and with the, all, all the information given, I'm just trying to do what I think is best for the people, instead of being so arrogant about the fact that they're 100%, they think they're 100% right. We need more pastors who will say, hey, this issue in the scripture it's been debated for thousands of years, and to think that I have it fully figured out would make me very arrogant, so I really don't know. We need bosses that explain situations and say, hey, look, I'm trying to keep the business afloat and respect my employees, and I'm just trying to do the best here for everyone, but I, I, I may be making the wrong decision. We need parents who say, look, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but this is the best for you, and I'm mom or dad, still, so still do what I say. Um, I don't know is a good answer. Unless you're lying. The Pharisees are lying. Their problem isn't intellectual. Their problem is moral. Ebony Bear says their challenge was not the dullness of their mind, but the stubbornness of their will. You see, they were threatened. The people were inspired by the words of Jesus. They were amazed by the miracles of Jesus. They were not inspired by the words of these religious teachers. And there was frankly nothing amazing about them. Their influence was diminishing and Jesus's was ascending. And this explains why they weren't just investigating Jesus. They were crucifying Jesus figuratively, which would lead to his literal crucifixion. They're losing influence and they envied John the Baptist and they envied Jesus. You see, envy is the flip side of the coin of vanity. When I'm envious, it's because I'm vain. I'm envious of anyone who might outdo me. If I'm humble, I can rejoice in the success of another and the giftedness of another or the extent of the crowd that is gathering to listen to another as long as they're committed to the truth. But if I am envious, basically, it says that I'm proud. And I think that people should be listening to me regardless of what the truth is than listening to him or her or whatever it might be. And that's what's going on here. They're full of pride. They're proud of their religious background. They're proud about their credentials. They're proud about the way everything had gone along up until now. And now this upstart rabbi shows up and everybody's listening to him and following him in great numbers. That's the conflict here. And so by getting Jesus to say that his authority is God, they can test that based on their own man-made standards of testing and try to put an end to his ministry. But Jesus is pretty smart. 
And he says, if you're gonna pretend like you don't have an answer to where John's authority is coming from, then he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They know that Jesus is saying, it's the same. But they're too politically motivated to deal with this issue of whether or not it's really true. We will find out the religious crowd doesn't want it to be true, so it doesn't really matter what the truth is. But they're not the only ones. And here we see an issue that has existed in their society, it exists in our society, and it is always present in the world. We rebel against the authority of God. Why? Well, some several hundred years before Jesus came to the earth, the psalmist wrote this in Psalm 2, verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist says people rebel against what they see as restrictions on their life from God. The root of the problems in this world is our rebellion to and rejection of God's authority. The root of the problems in this world is our rebellion to and our rejection of God's authority. You see, God's design is that we would walk with him and we would know him and we would experience the goodness that comes from trusting in him and following him. But we say, we think we know better. We don't trust that God is for our good or for our happiness and so we go out on our own way because we were born this way because we are determined to get what we want. And that leads to brokenness. That leads to brokenness in this world. This is why nations divide. This is why we have wars, but this also leads to brokenness in your life and my life. This is why we have the problems we have ultimately. And what we see here in our text today is that religion becomes twisted by this as well. And so we see this constant battle for authority, superiority played out in all domains of life. And much of what is done in life is done without consulting God, but rather with an effort to look back and say, see, I did it my way. But the psalmist doesn't stop with his description of what's happening in our world. Look at what he says in verse four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God say, the, God's word says, the fact that people are trying to establish their way, thinking they can stop God from getting his way ultimately, is funny to God. You see, rebellion to or rejection of God's authority is laughable from a heavenly perspective. Rebellion to or rejection of God's authority is laughable from a heavenly perspective. So I told you that, um, you know, I have uh, seven other people in my house and um, we have five children of our own and we've had, we've been uh, foster parents for six years and so we have, have had a bunch of different, you know, younger children in our house uh, throughout that period. And so I've had a lot of experience with um, preschoolers, with toddlers. Some people say twos are the worst, I think threes are the worst, but uh, I'm right and we can talk about that later. But something that is hilarious, if you really think about it, 
is that there will be a rule in our house and these young children who I am 10 times the size of will basically be like, no, I'm not gonna do what you want. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And while, you know, it's sad, it's really hard not sometimes to laugh at how hilarious it is that they think truly they're gonna take over control of the house. Hello. It's laughable to think about the fact that we think we can outrun the judgment of God or escape the will of God. The reason that my children or the children that live with me have that opportunity is because I just wanna see if they can learn the lesson on their own and so I'm giving them the freedom to do that. It is my grace that allows them to even have that moment to do that and it is God's grace that he's allowing you the time to figure this out. He could end your life whenever he wants to and it is his grace that you are here, that you are breathing, that you have the opportunity and the fact that you are running from him is really laughable from a heavenly perspective. And so I ask you this question, do you live as if God has all authority? As if God is 10 times, but really infinitely more bigger than you? Or do you live your way? And maybe you don't reject him, but you view him more as a therapist who's just there to help you feel better and move forward with what you want in life. Or a manager who's there to negotiate things that you might wanna get out of life for you. Or a politician who you just call upon so you can have your community and nation be more in line with what you want it to be. It's not that Jesus doesn't do some of these things or he isn't some of these things, but when we view Jesus as these things, it takes away from who he really is. He's the one with all authority. And when we make him into these things, we make him a servant to our way instead of serving him. When you think about how you view the world, And what the goals and ambitions are for your life, is that informed at all by what God says? And people dismiss things that God says, like, ah, well, that's probably not true. And we dismiss our own sin, that's probably okay. Jesus said that in a different culture, or God wants me to be happy. All we're doing here is we're establishing our authority over God's authority. We're saying if what God says isn't in line with what I want it to be, then I don't want it. And that's what's going on with the Jewish religious crowd who still to this day say that Christ has not come. They say if he isn't going to make us the superior nation, he isn't the one we should look to. What are the conditions for which you've said, if God is not going to do this in my life the way I want it to be, then he isn't the one I'm gonna look to. I think many of us are saying to Jesus, the real test of your authority is if you line up with what I want. And with this in mind, I wanna look at another passage as we begin to wrap up our time in the word this morning. In John chapter two, just two books after Mark, there's an encounter with Jesus in the temple. There's some debate about, because it's placed in chapter two of John, whether this happened at a separate time from the time before Passover at the end of Jesus's life or if it was the same time. I believe it was the same time. We don't know, but the truth is still relevant. John chapter two, verse 13 through 22. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I want to stop there. So Jesus claims authority over the temple, over religion, over access to God. He teaches as if he has authority. He acts as if he has authority. And the Jews says, what authority do you have to say this? What authority do you have to be in charge of how we practice our faith? And I think we might be asking the question today, what authority does Jesus have for me to pattern my life around him? What authority says I should change the way I live and the things I live for because of Jesus? And here's what Jesus says. Verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They asked, what authority do you have to do this? Do you have a sign that you can give us that suggests there is some authorization that is legitimate in you coming in here and doing all this stuff? And it is in this context that Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. And they don't know what to do with that all. But here is what it meant. What proves that Jesus has all authority is the resurrection. What proves that everything he taught and everything he did, we should revolve our life around, is the reality that he, as he said he would, came back to life. The resurrection proved Jesus' authority. And that's why we revolve our life around him. Because the one who comes back from the dead, we should take notice. And he's the one who wins. He's the one who defeats death. He's the one that gives us purpose. Now, I realize some of you aren't here yet. You still don't know if, if you believe that uh, a God created the world. And I'd be happy to sit down with you and talk to you more about how the fact that you believe that things happen by chance. And, and, and while I understand and respect where you come from, the reality is what you believe is that statistically, I could throw down the ingredients of a watch I could put those ingredients, break it to pieces, put it in a box, shake that box up until the watch magically forms back together and is alive and running. That's what you believe. And I'm happy to sit down with you and talk to you about how that's a harder stretch of faith than believing a creator designed what we, where we are. Some of you are like, yeah, of course I believe that this isn't by chance that we're here, but you don't believe in a personal God. You believe in a more impersonal God, you know, and so we can't really know him, and so everybody's just trying to find their way to him, but yet you have this morality that you believe people should live by, as if people should know right from wrong, and yet where is the standard for right and wrong? And I'm, and I'm happy to show you that that very conscience that you have, that there is a right and wrong, reveals that God's will can be known, and right and wrong can be known. C.S. Lewis said this, there are two things every person knows. One, that man ought to behave in a certain way, and number two is that we do not behave in that way. You might say, yeah, well, I know there's morality, but I really have a tar hard time with Jesus. I would love to sit down with you and walk you through all the scriptures that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus from hundreds of years before in the Old Testament. 
How the reliability of what the New Testament being written and, and, and how quickly it was circulated and how widespread it was shows us that if we can't believe that these things happen, then we can't believe anything that we read about from ancient history. I'm happy to talk about all the eyewitnesses and proof of the resurrection and how it would be unbelievable to think that the body would be stolen from Roman guards with, with such a highly uh, focused and emphasized uh, death and Jewish people would just let this happen. That nobody doubted that he, was die that he died and that there were 500 people alive who saw him alive as the New Testament is being written who could be asked if they saw the living Jesus. And for those of you who doubt this, I'd love to walk you through how Jesus said he, built, he would build his church. And a small group of people gathered together in Jerusalem believing that they had seen Jesus alive and being taught the kingdom of God. And they began to proclaim that message. And, and from their proclamation of that message, it began to spread into Asia and it began to spread into Europe and it began to spread into Africa. And over hundreds of years, societies began to be captivated and taken over by the truths of, of the gospel that resonated in the hearts of people. And eventually people moved over here bringing the gospel to America. And then in 1910, a group of people from the big city of Defuniac Springs came down to Boggy Bayou to plant a church where there needed to be a gospel witness. And for 112 years, the fruit of the work of the gospel has went forth in this small church. And that is happening all over the globe for billions and billions of people because Jesus said, I will build my church. And history has proven Jesus right. I am happy to talk to you about these things. If you're not there yet, let's meet. But some of you today, you're right there. You're right there at the feet of Jesus. And the only thing that is holding you back is that you wanna do it my way. That there are things you're thinking, I was born this way. That you have determined certain things about yourself. And I'm inviting you this morning Trade in the brokenness of my way. To trade in the brokenness of self-determination. To trade in the brokenness of born this way for the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. When people get baptized at our church, almost every time when I talk to them and they're kind of wrestling with whether or not they're ready for baptism, they say these words, I just don't deserve it. And I say these words, you're right. You don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. That's what becoming a Christian is. It's understanding that God experienced himself the undeserved consequences of rebellion against humanity on the cross so that humanity can be saved from the deserved consequences of rebellion against God. The judgment on man was taken on upon Jesus so that we might be righteous. We might walk and experience God's design. A holy God and a sinful man are reconciled through what happened on the cross. And the resurrection proves this wasn't just a noble servant. This was the king who is victorious even over death. And with him, we are promised eternal life 
in Christ Jesus. You are invited to experience God's design for your life and to walk in his path of restoration of all things. And I pray that you will take him up on that invitation today. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth, a person confesses, resulting in salvation. And look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You're thinking, I'll experience disappointment. I'll miss out on these things. The scripture says, everyone who realizes he is Lord and he is victorious over death, disappointment is not their future. Life is their future. Truth is their future. The way is their future because that is who Jesus is. For there is no distinction today. Wherever you're from, church background, no church background, running from God, first hearing about God, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Make him your master today because he is the master. There's no escaping that. And in his grace and in his love, he has allowed you to come to find this truth. I pray you know it today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, that when we read about the work of Jesus, we are not just people who are talking about something 2,000 years ago, but we see your resurrecting power in our lives today. I praise you for that. I praise you for the hope. I praise you for the new life. I praise you for the restoration. And I pray that every person who's listening to me today would take the step and walking towards you. By your grace, we are saved. And that is a free gift of God to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And thank you for the victory we have because of the resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen.